and welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today, because today we pick up our discussion of the Farseer trilogy with book two, Royal Assassin by Robin Hobb. That's exactly what we're here to do, Charles. I think we had an awesome time discussing the first book in this series, Assassin's Apprentice, and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, just rolling right through to the next one. We're going to get through this right whole through. trilogy probably within another couple weeks now. So it's uh, it's already been quite a ride. And <laughs> we, we really haven't discussed this at all off the air, this second nope. book. So. We've been pretty good. I'll say before we do our famous spoiler warning that I had a good... I really enjoyed reading this. I was on a summer, you know, I took my summer vacation, if you will, and I was just downing this story, uh, very, uh, getting very into it. It's so well written, and I even started a little bit of the third book as well, which we're not going to get into today, but um, we have not. And have you read this book before, Dylan? I don't think so, right? I have not. Okay, like, so we got a first-time uh, response. A decade plus ago, yeah, <laughs> I read the first book, Assassin's Apprentice, then reread it for our previous episode, and mm. now this is all new territory for me. And Fantastic. That's, yeah, I never quite made it to book two. <laughs> I, <laughs> I went over my mixed feelings about Assassin's Apprentice I had over a decade ago, uh, in our previous episode, and I also went over how my feelings have changed, how they've gotten more positive uh, after the reread, and then, yeah, they they remain positive after this second book. Uh, I'm excited to get into the, the deep depths of spoiler <laughs> territory. I'm excited as well, and the, the only other thing I'll say is, you know, our first discussion, Assassin's Apprentice... Um, went over very well, actually. I was surprised by the reception to it. I, I wasn't sure. When you pick up a book that was released in 1995, I think it was, um, and, and even though it's a classic, it, it, are you still going to get the interest level of that you would get from a popular book that's coming out today? And the answer is definitely yes, you can with the power of Robin Hobbs. So super exciting to see that kind of attention as well. And we're excited to just keep it going. Yeah, that was our most downloaded episode, at least the first week uh, wise. That was the the best week an episode has had in recent memory and yeah. we also had a great first week for a court of thorns and roses the other we did. book we that we did. chose out of friends pitching fantasy so i would say <laughs> this this set of friends pitching fantasy books has been a rousing success <laughs> it has it has been a very rousing success so some let's... would say that a court of thorns and roses was an e-rousing success <laughs> You know, I understood your intention when you said a rousing. I didn't think we need to explicitly go there. But, you know, for all the listeners, we 
We went. A Court of Thorns and Roses explicitly <laughs> went there, Charles. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> and we'll probably be picking up the rest of that series too. But we, were, you know, once I started the Farseer trilogy, I, I didn't want to stop. So when Dylan was like, "Hey, we've read both first book, first books. What do you want to read next?" I'm like, "Royal Assassin. Let's keep it going." So. Uh, Dylan, let's just jump into the conversation. Let's get one of those spoiler warnings going so we can get into it. Yeah, we're about to have a no-holds-barred conversation about Royal Assassin, book two of the Farseer trilogy. So if you haven't yet read uh, book two here, uh, and or you haven't yet read book one, Assassin's Apprentice, now's a great time to get on that and to also turn this down in your headphones before we get into the spoilers because that's gonna start happening now <laughs> that is gonna start happening right away guys so um yeah here oh, we are forgot to say oh? we will not spoil book three or any other mm-hmm. realm of the elderlings books partially because i've not read book three yep and um, I have read it, but and I'm actively reading it right now for our future episode. But I'm not going to say nothing about it. I'm going to stick strictly to Assassin's Apprentice and Royal Assassin today. And there's plenty to Good talk man. about within within Royal Assassin. So I think the first thing that I just need to know, Dylan, you, you said you were enjoying the read earlier in the episode, but I got to get your full your full take on the on your your first impression with with Royal Assassin. Where are we with Robin Hobbs trilogy? How is it holding up? You know, what's the experience been like for you? Well, it remains shockingly modern for a book mm-hmm. that this one came out in 1996. Mm-hmm. And you kind of forget that when you're reading it and you can forget how long ago 1996 was. I mean, that 27 years ago at this point so oh gosh i don't want to do the math (laughs) yeah yeah. and that is that's a long time in the world of fantasy writing and it's yeah it's a testament to how good it is that i totally forget that and i remember that and i'm in awe of it and then i forget it again because it's uh, so easy to get just sucked into a story like it's it's written in such a, a modern way which you know we're far from the first ones to say that i know you read a quote from uh international best-selling author mark lawrence friend of the show mm-hmm. who basically uh, said in a much more eloquent way how modern robin hobb writes uh character work remains brilliant and i would say in the latter half of this book the plot and the pacing picks up substantially we have a lot more happening and the the court intrigue gets more interesting Fitz is kind of I guess getting older and a little more directly involved in what's going on rather than just being a total uh like pawn in the whole thing Mm -hmm. Uh, he's maybe moved up to like a rook or something (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm no chess master maybe rooks are awesome but (laughs) It's, you know, he's he's got a little bit more say in what's going on without being, you know, one of, he's no queen, but no, no. he's, uh, yeah, uh, he's got a lot more involvement, I would say. And the intrigue and the things that are happening and the stakes of all of it feel a lot bigger in this book. Uh, and the book is also physically much bigger. It uh, yeah. is worth mentioning. It's, yeah, Robin Hobb goes full out like 
length creep over the course of this series. Yes, yes. And that's a pretty common phenomenon, I think, in fantasy trilogies where each one's progressively longer than the previous one. But I would say that this one is uh, even more so like the the series creep from book one to book two and then even more so to book three is is huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Hobb finds a way to keep especially the second half of this book really moving and all the character work and foundation Mm -hmm. she's laid before we get there it it really pays off because it's amazing how much i found myself caring about these characters i mean uh, like verity right at the start of book one like feels almost like a nothing burger uh (laughs) then when we're getting news like oh maybe he's dead maybe he's not whatever i'm like he better not be dead. <laughs> like he's yeah. one of the few, like just very unquestionably good people in the story. And <laughs> right. he's always on Fitz's side. So I, yeah, moments like that, I'm like, Oh wow. I'm, it's amazing how much Hobb has made me care about characters that like could have easily been very <laughs> two dimensional based on uh, how we were first introduced to them. But she just, they're, they're onions with layers like ogres or what. <laughs> what about a puffet? Everybody likes puffet. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I totally agree. I think this book continues to build upon the skills that Robin Hobb was demonstrating in Assassin's Apprentice. The the character work and the writing style, it, it it's incredible. And yes, it it. It's longer than the first book, uh, and I've seen the familiar criticisms of the you know pacing issues and things like that. But um, you can't argue with the fact that hey, this book was written in 1996, okay, and it is so far ahead of its time. We haven't gotten anything like it up until something like the King Killer Chronicles, nearly 20 years later. You know, so it's mm-hmm. pretty incredible to see this kind of thoughtful approach to writing this tragic unpopular kind of narrative of a main character taking shape for as long of a page count as we've had pretty much a hundred percent in the mind of fits which is crazy is this is the most we've been reading into a single character by the end of a second book in uh in a long, long time, especially now, it's so popular to jump around perspectives and tell the story. In this book, it's going to be from these characters' perspectives. It's like, no, it's all fits all the time, baby. And I'm, <laughs> I'm here for it because the things that happen by the end of this book it could only be possible with the investment of everything that's come before it, with how much we are in Fitz's mind and how much we have nurtured Fitz's relationships through the narrative. You know, it's an incredible payoff that you don't really get a whole lot in a reading experience because a lot of authors aren't investing that kind of commitment to the intimacy of knowing a character like Robin Hobb is willing to do in this trilogy. For sure. We've read series where like character deaths let's say Mm -hmm. are things that they just kind of happen and you can tell the author is like wanting to hit you in the feels with it but just doesn't feel earned or you'll almost be reading like like 
uh, the stakes here aren't doing it for me because I don't really care if this character dies or anything like that. And they can have these intense action-packed scenes that theoretically anyone can die, they're in danger, blah, blah. But without the the stakes and the worries that's, uh, about that character, they end up falling flat or reading as kind of like boring. Uh, Mm -hmm. What Robin Hobb is able to do in making like court intrigue or a character like slowly dying from disease or maybe (laughs) poisoning or maybe something else, you know, uh, bit of a combination of both. Watching that (laughs) unfold. Yeah. Like some, (laughs) some degree of everything, but I guess mostly it was the the skill. Right. Mm -hmm. But you don't know that as you're reading and it's like, what's happening this guy's kind of like shriveling and going slowly toward the light but he's he's hanging on uh, during those moments it's like oh wow that she's made that have a ton of drama and tension and have us extremely invested and also when we know oh like what happens when like shrewd is who i'm talking about king shrewd mm-hmm. uh, when he's if he when he dies we know with Verity gone, Regal is in prime shape to take the throne and do all his messed up Regal things that we hate. And <laughs> it's like, I don't know, you just feel like you know Fitz so well and he feels like a friend and the things that happen to him, like I, when I'm reading it, I take them so personally because oh, yeah. we're so tight to his point of view and he's, mm-hmm. he's a pretty sympathetic character and a well-meaning one. And yeah than the things that happen to all the other characters by relation to Fitz. It's just, that means a lot too, you know. And of course, we've come to care about those characters individually for their own sake, outside of just their their relationship to Fitz. So the character work is more and more leading to like intense investment and it's uh, all that, yeah, work that she's put in ahead of time that other folks might read as slow, it's paying off because now the same kind of events are happening that could happen in another book, but we care way more. We're way, way more invested in those things. I agree completely. And it it's it's all comes back to like the way she just balances everything too with these characters. And you know, I'm talking about in the first book to me, like a big theme was this idea of just societal constructs and how they treat you and how you function within your rung of society. In this book, I very much got that we were talking about one is kind of like everyone's sense of duty. That was a really interesting thing to go around our cast of characters and see how they handled this theme of, of duty and where you've got Fitz is battling with it obviously Molly's being like what good is it Regal is totally like forget it and Verity and Shrewd are so (laughs) focused on it that they've lost everything to Regal you know so it's it's a really interesting balance to see and then I love how we're balancing the relationship and the bond that Fitz has because he's getting older he's starting to develop his own relationships and now he's got two one with Night Eyes and and one with Molly and it's interesting to see the the similarities and the distinctions and like (laughs) how he treats them very differently but it all comes down to this same thing of like how can you 
like have people you love in your life when you have a job to do and how can you like is letting people into your life nothing but exposing you to pain and something that should be shunned or suppressed or siloed or is it the main goal in life you know how do you like what is it and Fitz spends the whole time stumbling around trying to figure it out and he never quite gets his footing on any of it and that's like the funny thing about well, funny. It's like a really interesting, beautiful piece about this book is that even by the end of the book, the theme doesn't quite, you know, what happens is basically he dies, right? Like he gets the, the, and, and it becomes isolated and alone. And that's a really interesting, I don't know, it's just a really interesting exploration for this character. He never quite solves it. There's not quite this hero's moment where he's like, I love you, Molly. We're going to be together forever. It's <laughs> suffering and torture the whole book pretty much right the duty thing that you're touching on is definitely the theme i would say Mm -hmm. i think that it's interesting the way that you compare and contrast the relationships i mean uh night eyes like totally doesn't understand these human constructs and is a Mm -hmm. lot more like bestial and in that way can kind of be the uh, and bestial maybe that's not the right word he's more just like at the very base like it's important to like care about your pack it's important to eat it's important to like survive and in a lot of ways it's pretty clear that night eyes and and fits when he's like in in wolf mode like doesn't suffer the way that people can suffer because people hold on to all these abstract ideas like duty and Mm -hmm. i think that it's you know it's interesting you've got him connected to night eyes through the wit uh, or sorry yeah through the wit you've mm-hmm. got him connected to verity through the skill and mm-hmm. then you've got what he would at least claim is the strongest bond which is to molly through mm-hmm. just you know good old-fashioned love yeah and yeah and hormones and I would say <laughs> probably a lot of those flying around. Uh, a few, and, I would say. <laughs> and uh, not quite at the level of A Court of Thorns and Roses, but, you know, no, we get some... <laughs> no. we, we get a lot of the details skipped, but we are, yeah. it happens a lot. Yeah, and what's funny is, you know, Fitz is at a different stage of life. In the first book, he was very much the victim of circumstance. What I love about this book is people start to point out to him Fitz, you have choices now, and it becomes most apparent when he's faced with Molly, and and it's like, you know, you have the choice to court her or not. Like this is something that you're actively doing. And it's like, oh, you have the choice to like make yourself known in court or not. He he's starting to make decisions and buy into this world, and it's not just like he's using it not only as something he has to do, he starts to use it as an excuse, which is pretty crazy. He's like, oh, I have to, you know, for the love of my king, my duty to my king. It's like, you don't even talk about King Shrewd anymore, who you made this promise to. And now you're talking all about Verity, and Verity doesn't even want you to do this. So it's like, what are you talking about, Fitz? It's a really interesting, subtle way that this character, like we bought into this whole thing of like, oh, my, he's my king, he's my king, he's my king. Now Fitz is presented with options and he's older and he's starting to make sometimes selfish options. And it's interesting to watch that 
sense of duty kind of twist and morph throughout this whole book. You know, we talked about Night Eyes being the total antithesis of that. And one of the things that I really love about that, because we're told, hey, bonding to the wit is bad and you're no better than an animal. We knew that in book one, right? Birch was very adamant about that. And now here we are in book two. It starts with, you know, uh, Fitz sensing night eyes in a cage the agony of him being in a cage and he just the compulsion of feeling that sense of agony brought him to save him from the cage and take care of him and and then he just was like unwilling unwittingly bonded you know he's he keeps having this kind of there you go (laughs) he's like i but it almost is like you start to see fitz is putting up these excuses for himself and people are starting to call him out on it as he gets older but what I like about now that we have Night Eyes as a character is it's the direct contrast to what he has to do to maintain his relationship with Verity and Shrewd. And we talked about the duty aspect of that. And you mentioned Night Eyes doesn't really have that construct. And there's actually a pretty good quote in here from Night Eyes um, early on in the book when they're talking about like freedom and He's like, you know, Fitz, I think, is one of these things where he's like trying to tell him to be on his own and leave him out of his life. You don't want me bonded to you like you're better off alone. Um, And he goes, uh, let's see. He says. um, He says, men, it is who think they could rule others lives, but have no bonds to them. Do you think that to bond or not to bond is for you alone to decide? My heart is my own. I give it where I will. I will not give it to one who thrusts me aside, nor will I obey one who denies pack and bond. And that, you know, if Fitz only could listen to some of that, you know, because (laughs) he's in that exact same situation where he's got people in his life who genuinely, like, love him and care about him that he's denying. And then there's that people who thrust him aside or deny pack and bond like you're a bastard that definition is literally to deny pack and bond to call you that it's that interesting duality that he has about him and the result is not really a good answer presented by the end but at least it's like the decision you have to make has to be your own at a certain point and it's cowardly to use one as an excuse for the other which is what Fitz does for like hundreds and hundreds of pages in this book and pretty much ruins every relationship in his life you know switching from one to the other so uh, it was just really masterfully crafted i can yeah it's, it's it's so much fun to try and wrap my head around it in 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 this book yeah it's messy which reflects mm-hmm. reality these things aren't usually easily wrapped up in the in a bow by the end of some sort of like <laughs> event in your life there there aren't clear objective answers uh, you do get uh, sort of like the angel and the devil though who's the angel and who's the devil you do have mm-hmm. sort of night eyes on one shoulder and verity uh on the other uh or if and verity not even necessarily himself speaking these things into what Fitz has to do although sometimes that's the case mm-hmm. it's like the idea of verity and what it means to serve verity and serve the king and serve the crown and it's like uh yeah, it, a lot of times it it is cop out. It's ways to like not take risks and uh, keep doing whatever is easiest for you in the moment. And mm-hmm. I think the way that it works out with 
Molly Fitz thinks he's being as unselfish as possible but he, there's even a moment where uh, patience like patience is telling him like oh yeah like there's this uh, like herb that can be used to prevent pregnancies you know you know what i mean and i, <laughs> I saw molly picking it wonder wonder what's going on over there like guess uh guess she's trying to use it for one of the other effects right Fitz yeah. and Fitz is like oh wow like I didn't even consider the amount of burden that I'm putting on Molly like I was like that'll all just sort itself out yeah. and, and there's that like, great where patience a, yeah. brings up a lot of great points she's like what yeah. are you going to achieve by pursuing Molly you know that any path leads to destruction for her like you might be fine in most of them heartbroken maybe but fine but she would not survive and good call from patience to have that that foresight but it's another thing that Fitz doesn't realize more often than not I was being so reminded of a name of the wind and wise man's fear throughout this not to give any spoilers to that but there is a main character and he's so self-absorbed in his relationships and his tasks and his quests and his schooling and whatever that people have to call him out all the time and he's learning and because we're in that perspective so much we're almost like learning with him we're like oh yeah i guess molly is doing other stuff when we're she's not on screen with fits and like there is a lot that she's willing to do because molly has to remind fits many times like hey you're not the only one risking something i'm willingly risking this like the same amount for my own life you know i'm choosing this as much as you are you don't get to choose it and then be like oh but don't worry i'm doing this for you it's like no you fool i'm choosing this too like why are you acting like you're trying to save me or something you know it's a really interesting dynamic and so so reminiscent of patrick rothfuss's um uh, king killer chronicles that i was like wow this is a fun subgenre that we don't get enough of <laughs> yeah and i really don't know what else to quite put in that subgenre the, it's very neat it does feel like yeah it does feel like the fitz molly relationship is a very clear predecessor to the quoth denner relationship and that plays out so far significantly differently in terms of the events <laughs> and all the the details right, right. but the sentiment of a character who mm. like will say all the words uh that yeah. indicate that he prioritizes this person above everyone else uh like he'll keep telling himself he'll keep telling you the reader uh whatever else that oh this my love interest is the most important uh, person to me but then all his behaviors indicate that's not the case and <laughs> like end of the day molly is calling fits out for like no if i was actually your number one priority like you do this you do that uh instead like you keep talking about verity and how you can't do any of this and it's like you do have choices but fits doesn't see it that way and and you know he does make certain attempts he does ask king shrewd if he can marry molly yeah. but Shrewd's like, when LOL, king no. shrewd says no which <laughs> is like of course he's going to say no it's funny how yeah. like, naive fitz still is at certain points oh yeah like, shrewd he's shrewd 
He does not care about sentimentality. He's like, I've already got you lined up for a very strategic marriage. Like, yeah. you're going to be sitting pretty. You're going to be like a noble and you're going to have lands and holdings. And, you know, it's a good family. The dad likes you. You know, it's like, I got you everything. <laughs> like, political connections and, like, attraction. You know, it's good. And he's right. like, oh, God, I'd, I'd rather have Molly. And he's still, even when he gets rejected, they still continue to court and they still, you know, Molly's knowingly doing this too, but Fitz is, you know, we're in the mind of Fitz and he's so like agonized over it. And it comes to like a head really, like it gets to the point where literally everyone knows it's like the worst kept secret ever (laughs) and then i've got another great quote for for fitz and molly here if i could find it but while i'm looking for it like we all know how you feel about the quote and down a relationship or longtime listeners will know um obviously very different relationship a precursor maybe but very different how are we sitting on the fitz molly relationship are we shipping it as we say or nay I mean, I'm shipping it just because they both love each other. And when two people, you know, two adults love each other Mm. and would like to be together, ideally, I would also like them to be together if possible. But Mm. I don't know, it just doesn't. There's some piece for me that is missing in terms of like tugging at my heartstrings at quite Mm. the same level Mm. that like i get for quoth and denna mm-hmm. and i i can't exactly tell you why mm-hmm. that is i i think it's like my my best attempt is the the actual interactions between fitz and molly they're kind of I don't know. They they fall a little bit flat compared mm-hmm. to Fitz's other relationships, I would For say. For sure. Like, the complexity just isn't quite there in their interactions. Right. It's just kind of, like, on the surface for the most part. Not I'd entirely, say there's just definitely some to... telling of Fitz and Molly love each other. Yeah. And so we can get to the point of them being together and then talking about how hard it is to be together. There was, we missed the romance part. We missed the will they, won't they. We didn't get the scenes of them casually doing stuff. We got it when they were kids. There's not a lot like, yeah, they're like flirting and they're like, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into the name of the wind and the wise men's fear and stuff. But I would just say for Quoth and Denna, we get a little bit more of the like process that yeah. is playing out like you get their actual conversations and you see like you yeah. see how they're developing uh whatever you would call their relationship because that's a complicated one but they're developing whatever feelings they hold toward each other uh and you, you get it you see why and then like you're saying charles with uh with molly and fitz like the same elements are there but you just don't see the process you kind of see a lot more just outcome like this is where we're at and then we had sex and then we like were shouldn't have because i can't marry her and then she said i was her wife or what she was my (laughs) wife i was (laughs) 
Like, I'm your wife it's, now. It's kind of like, <laughs> like those things are happening, but there's yeah. not a lot of like relationship for this like sake of relationship going on. Right, and I think I that think of all of his relationships, that. even like his one with Lady Patience. You know, I think Molly's was the least nurtured because it also had to do the heavy lifting of the drama of Fitz trying to maintain the relationship not even just be in one. So I I think we just, there was less focus on it, less development on it, which it's a common criticism I've seen. Even um, our friend Petrick uh, says, hell yes for Fitz's bond with Night Eyes and hell no for Fitz's relationship with Molly. I don't know if I'd go as far as to <laughs> wow. say hell no. Patrick Leo. But Booktuber uh, extraordinaire. Yeah, Booktuber extraordinaire. And Goodreads reviewer extraordinaire for Prolific sure. Goodreads reviewer right. for sure. These like really well thought out reviews for like every book. <laughs> so <laughs> props to Patrick for that. And I see where he's coming from. I don't know if I'm hell no for yeah. Fitz and Molly's relationship, but it just doesn't. It just doesn't quite elicit much feeling for me. And you know, I'm a sucker for a, a good like relationship with longing and complication and stuff like that but there's something sure, that's like sure. 2d about it in the yeah. way that like, yeah exactly a broth fist writes the same kind of relationship in a more three-dimensional way right and in Rothfuss, that relationship is so exactly. much more the focus of the story than yeah that's this true. relationship is not really as focused it's important but it's only one minor part but tell me if this doesn't tug on your heartstrings i found the quote i wanted to read Ooh. this is when fitz first realizes that molly has left buckkeep gone uh, molly was gone she wasn't coming back I had held myself together by refusing to think of her. This empty room jerked the blindfold from my eyes. I looked into myself and despised what I saw. I wish I could call back the kiss I had placed on Celerity's fingertips, balm for a girl's wounded pride, or the lure to bind her and her father to me. I no longer knew which it had been. Neither could be justified. Both were wrong. If I believed at all in the love I had pledged to Molly. That one act was proof I was guilty of all she had charged me with. I would always put the farseers ahead of her. I had dangled mm. marriage before Molly like bait, left her with no pride in herself, nor belief in me. And there's also a line where he's like, I had promised to Verity that I would never drain someone's energy, uh, but that's oh, exactly yeah. what I had done to Molly. You know, it's like these revelations are... Uh, so one hob like come on powerhouse writer right like that was incredible and two it's it's really this hypocrite theme that's going on with uh fitz he used his sense of duty to kind of let his relationship with molly fizzle out to the point where she just like straight up got tired of waiting and left and he's like gutted completely uh it, it's a touching moment I don't, it, it's really powerful well, she claims that she's leaving because of uh, someone else who I believe she uses he pronouns for mm -hmm. that she is leaving because she cares about him as much as Fitz cares about the farseers and duty and blah, 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 blah. And Fitz has it in his head that, oh, it must be like a new guy in her life, blah, blah, blah. But that is never clarified, and I am 
my guess goes towards she did get pregnant because the mm. herb she's using, patient said, isn't very good. All it does is really get you sick. And when you're sick, maybe you have a slightly less chance of getting <laughs> pregnant. So that's how it is sometimes effective. Uh, so mm. I'm going to guess that Molly is pregnant. And that's, we'll have that's to playing ch- out uh, over there. Maybe it's we'll addressed again. Out. I can't but, say. We'll yeah. have to find out. We'll have but, to wrap um, We'll have to raffo. Here's the other quote. I, I knew myself for a coward and worse than a thief. I had once told Verity I could not draw off another man's strength to feed my own, that I would not. Yet every day, that was what I did to Molly. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. And that's the, that's the thing is Hobbes' prose and her way of describing these things is just chef's kiss. I think that any places in which I'm like, okay, well, these actual scenes of them interacting, even if that's not quite doing it for me, the way that she's able to like evoke the right emotions and get you in the right headspace mm-hmm. with this like poetic, beautiful language like that. I guess that's probably why, why I'm not like hell no to Molly and Fitz is because mm-hmm. Hob comes in for the save with these (laughs) fits reflecting on, oh, this is what's actually happening. This is how I'm actually treating her. And I get why she's reacting in this way. And it kind of allows you to fill in some gaps where if, you know, uh, if Hob didn't have such beautiful, evocative and I guess insightful ways of describing things, then yeah, maybe she wouldn't get away with the Fitz-Molly relationship as well as I think she does. <laughs> that's that's well said. And that kind of leads us to... Um, I don't know, let's we just go... Did we talk enough about Night Eyes? I, I think we did. Um, there, Night Eyes got some pop. Night Eyes got some pop. And I'll have more to say about him in a bit, but I don't know. I... I wanted to talk more about like kind of the end of this book because I feel like it just contextualizes so much of where we're going with it, you know, because there's that revelation that King Shrewd was being leeched. But then, you know, we get to the like Fitz is captured. I love when his strategy was he was going to do a lot of drugs and run up to the people using the skill and kill them. And then it's him running down the great hall in front of everyone with a knife, like screaming, <laughs> chasing someone, and then tackling them and stabbing them over and oh over. It's God. like that must have been an insane, an insane visual for anyone else. But for Fitz, it seemed like such a rational choice. Like, I must defend my king. And then it's like he ruined any chance he had of ever holding influence with anyone in that room ever again. <laughs> He went from having a shot to basically be the, like, sitting temporary king and having a ridiculous amount of power where all these people are behind him to just, like, absolute maniac who is murdering people in front of everyone. Uh, Yeah. Gotta feel bad for Shade, who trained him in the arts of, like, being a secret assassin. (laughs) And then Fitz just, like, running up and just, like, stabby, stabby, stabby. Yeah. Uh, That's that's his new method. But, yeah, I don't know. He just lost it. (laughs) I don't know what to say. 
<laughs> absolutely Rough lost one. it. Rough and one. I think we can talk about King Shrewd then, because here's a character who throughout this whole book, his health is failing. He denied Fitz's marriage, right? And he orchestrated the other marriage. But this... There's this interesting sense of duty amongst the Farseer royalty, right? They're bad. They have a PR problem because they're being seen as aloof and not doing anything. Meanwhile, we know that through the skill, they're able to divert people in every which way. They're sabotaging red ships uh, and all of that. But it's a thankless job and it's leeching their strength and you see Verity rapidly aging and Shrewd is sequestered to his rooms. It's interesting how like this total devotion to protecting the realm is actually their weakness (laughs) that someone like Regal was able to manipulate and in front of everybody, and we all knew it was coming, as Shrewd and Verity also knew it was coming. That's one of the best things about Regal as a villain. Like, there's nothing... He's like, "Uh, yeah, I want to be king, and I'm actively poisoning Shrewd, and I don't care that Verity's gone. And then everyone is like, yeah, just let him do it. That's Regal, you know? It is what it is. And then it just happens. It's absolutely insane. (laughs) I I listen to this football podcast around the NFL, and... Uh, host Dan Hansis. He says, uh, like, whenever there's a guy that people will just be like, oh, yeah, like, Will's Will. Like, <laughs> so, you know, like, Bob's Bob. Like, yeah. whenever someone's described that way, he's like, they're just a horrible person. Like, <laughs> they're just an awful human being. <laughs> um, so he's like, yeah, that's kind of what you remind me of. Where it's like, yeah, you know, Regal's regal. <laughs> like, regal's regal's regal. being regal. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, what I love about this whole thing is like we all know he's bad, but we do nothing about it. And then the bad thing happens. And we acted like we were, by inaction, we were doing our duty and being good the whole time. And yet we end up paying these consequences for it. I, I feel like with King Shrewd at the end, there was a lot of interesting stuff there where he starts to kind of backpedal the beliefs he was holding for two straight books both about regal and about fits and i don't know dylan what do you think about this whole like like letting regal run amok to the point of your own death do you think like there i feel like there were some moments where king shrewd in those final hours but hob was kind of pretty deliberately vague about it i don't know how'd you read into those moments well, there is a moment at the very end of his life where he just says, like, I was foolish. Like, I I let Regal be Regal too long. And, <laughs> right. like, I don't I don't have the quote like you, you do there, mm. Charles, maybe. But uh, he is like, I, I really let this, like, I really screwed this up in the end. And I let Regal uh, go too far and, and be too Regal about everything. So he gets this kind of weird moment of clarity where he's been like all kind of on not himself and not in his right mind. It just comes to and he's like, I screwed everything up, Fitz. My B, like I, I also screwed things up with you. And I would say that like it's I like it from a narrative standpoint because 
you just don't want to see shrewd go off mm. you know off into the sunset with no idea what just played out because he's a character that's well established for like having everything figured out and all this plotting that's like oh wow he has such a blind spot for regal and everyone's always that's another one of those things that in this book almost like the molly fits situation where we're just told over and over again like uh, oh well regal is shrewd's favorite where it's like what about regal (laughs) would ever make him shrewd's favorite yeah yeah it's like verity is like busting his ass every day for your kingdom and like shriveling up and aging uh, way beyond his years for you and he's a guy Mm. who cares so much about that kind of Mm. stuff in his kingdom and his duty and regal is just a fop who like (laughs) anyone with any sense of uh like what people are like can see through him and see he's a terrible person. Well, it's kind of interesting because we're so committed to blind spot. I agree. I agree. But the only argument I would have for Hobbes's defense is that we are, the story is a hundred percent through Fitz's perspective. Fitz would never know the relationship of, of shrewd and regal because they're not family. Uh, and we only get what we're told. One of the things I like about Regal as this villain is everyone else besides Fitz likes Regal. Like Birch and Fitz don't like him. The fool doesn't like him. But everyone else, they like him. He's a charismatic guy. Even Ketrickin liked him and was like, oh, he wanted to go riding with me. He was so nice and charming. It's like... Do you not understand that he purposefully ran off and let you get trapped by forged ones hoping that you would die? Like, this is crazy. Do you not see King Shrewd that he's guarding your... He controls the guards and the people taking care of you and he's keeping you high so you don't do anything and he's giving you these headaches so you don't leave. But he uses that charm and that wit on everyone except Fitz. And so it's... It's kind of interesting to see how when he's talking to like the the kitchen staff and they're like, oh, Regal would be a better king than Verity. Verity left us to chase a fairy tale. Regal's here, like holding court with everyone. And he's so handsome and he's, you know, he's putting on these great balls and he's so well dressed and all these other things. And you're like, what? What are we doing here? Um, And I guess Shrewd maybe was kind of blinded by some of that i i think you know this book has kind of danced around the duty to the realm and the duty to the people in your life and that may have just been shrewd's blind side you know he was so adamant on running the kingdom that he could never consider that someone within his own ranks would be working against him you know no matter how obvious the signs um and you're right dylan we did get a moment with shrewd where he acknowledged it and i think i found the quote in my book here where shrewd is going he's talking to fitz i would say farewell to verity i would have him know from me that i did not countenance any of this let me at least keep that much faith with the son who kept faith with me that's literally all he said about it so with the son who kept faith with me says it all in such a shrewd way of saying that too he's still not acknowledging or won't vocalize you know regal tried to kill me (laughs) or regal killed me so he could take the throne 
he said, let me be faithful to the son, faithful to me. You know, it's such like a fatherly kind of right. withholding of emotion kind of vibe too. You know, it's, it says a lot. And the, yeah, the implication being that the other son did not keep faith exactly. with him. Exactly. But yeah, it's, uh, it's kept subtle and that's, that's pretty, pretty cool that shrewd. Yeah, Shrewd goes out the way that he lived. But then sure. he does one when he skill links with um, Fitz. There's this one part yeah. that I like where he goes, he calls Fitz son of my son, blood of my blood. Yeah. In my own way, I have loved you. And he's like, my young assassin, what have I made of you? How have I twisted my own flesh? You do not know how young you still are. Chivalry's son. It is not too late to grow straight again. Lift up your head, see beyond all this. And that was pretty much the last words he said before he died. And it says, like, like wow. a bubble popping. He, like, then he was gone, period, new paragraph. Like a bubble popping, period, new paragraph. So you're like, oh, jeez. Like, <laughs> wow. It was pretty that wild stuff. some good writing. And, yeah, it's super confusing from so confusing. the guy who is the reason, let's say, why Fitz can't marry Molly. And, and why he's in the situation in the first place like, is King Shrewd's idea to pick him yeah. up off of the floor and make him a tool. You know, it was his idea. For sure. And he's kind of apologizing for that aspect of it. Mm. But he's also telling him, like, hey, like, now you should do whatever you want. Like, now you yeah. shouldn't just be restricted by the things he's that I He's saying, like, I see like, my mistakes, you really yeah. are my blood. You really are someone worthy of having your own life. You can move on from it. And he's also saying like this stuff that we've, again, this duty that we've ruined our lives for, it's not worth it. Like you can still walk away from all this, right, is what he's saying. It's like this is something worth walking away from. I think as he's on his deathbed and realizing that, his own son betrayed him that it wasn't worth it at all and that he wished he probably had more time to keep his family together and not less time being so shrewd and scheming if you will <laughs> shrewd being shrewd yeah, it, <laughs> shrewd shrewd yeah the thing is that i would say it goes back to what we we're talking about around night eyes and uh, oh, yeah. the discrepancy between how Night Eye sees the world and how someone like Shrewd might see the world is for Night Eye, it's as simple as pack. And pack isn't like this abstract concept that's bigger than everyone and blah, blah. It's literally the other wolves or in Fitz's case, you know, oh, people or living beings mm -hmm. that you are united with with and that's who you owe this loyalty and all these things like to make their lives better and to be uh, you know greater than the sum of your parts and, to, and together and supportive and all that kind of stuff uh, so well that that would be as you know that would be if shrewd was like farseer not duty <laughs> as an abstract concept just like the farseer clan right you know, we right. do what we can to all make each other's lives better and other stuff doesn't matter as much. Right. And he's kind of coming around at the end of his life to seeing it that way where it's like, oh, wow, all this 
BS about like, oh, well, he's a bastard and this is the royal line succession and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, wait, you're straight up the son of my son. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you are part of the Farseer clan right. in the most clear way. And it's kind of, yeah, it comes around uh, toward the end to more of the Night Eyes way right. of seeing things. And I think that's kind of an aspect of Hobbes writing. She never, like, beats this drum super hard or over and over. Right. But I think she kind of gets at the idea that in a lot of ways, like, animals are more like <laughs> noble than people in there and, and that's kind of an ursula k Le Guin thing too and yeah is this like uh there's something so like honest and true and one with the world about like especially simple animals and mm-hmm. uh, it's only people that like overcomplicate things and and in that way like can grow to be wicked or or even unintentionally like do all these bad things so well said and i think you're really dialing in on robin hobbs thesis in this story at least in this book it's hard to imagine that she has a thesis because she's so subtle about it and she's not offering any kind of a solution but in those moments with king shrewd i think it's very telling and then this idea of duty, I think, is very telling. But then there's this scene and towards the end, right, where he dies. And there's this chapter called Wolf Days that I think mm-hmm. summarizes this whole thing where um, it's written in the italics like it is in the beginning of all the books. But um, the exercise for centering oneself is a simple one. Stop thinking of what you intend to do. Stop thinking of what you have just done. Then stop thinking that you have stopped thinking of those things. Then you will find the now, capital N, the time that stretches eternal and is really the only time there is. Then in that place, you will finally have time to be yourself. And when I read that, I was like, highlight, 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 because the time to be yourself is all Fitz is ever quested after. And he's looked for it in duty and he's looked for it in relationships and he's looked for it in the wit bond. And I think it's like, look, when you strip all of those things away and you really try and figure out when all the cards are on the table, like with King Shrewd, and you're really looking back, like, and you're faced with than now and Fitz is literally actively dying in this scene right so you're like okay um this is literally what he's reflecting on and being left with it's this idea that in that place you will have time to be yourself when you're free from all of the things you have to do and have done and just did it's like no there's this other thing about life and it you know you you were right where ursula Le Guin used nature to say the same thing of like there is just existing and there's a you can be yourself in that and it's free from judgment and society and duty and all these other things, these social constructs that Fitz was a victim of in book one and then duty that he's a victim of in book two, that you can have this higher plane of existence, right? And using the natural world to pull on that to finally have time to be yourself, which I found so specific from Hobb to say that because Fitz has had such an identity crisis and even now he's got someone his whole life telling him to sacrifice his being to be a tool and I'll keep you fed 
And it's like, yeah, okay. And now he's being like, oh, JK, that was a bad idea. Don't do that anymore. And he's just so confused. And it's like, hey, find the time to be yourself. It's really the, I think, the message and the thesis that Hobbes is trying to hit home with Fitz that he did not really learn yet. But maybe through actively dying and finding that serenity, he might take some of it. Who knows? Yeah, that's that's well said, Charles. There's... There's this awesome passage in this uh, book for, you know, I'm in, I'm in psychology for any of the listeners who don't know. And uh, there are these books on acceptance and commitment therapy, a act. And uh, there's, there's one passage in, uh, in one of the books that talks about how, uh, like, animals can feel pain but only humans can suffer and it's uh, talking about the idea like act is based on all this 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 thing called relational frame theory which is all about how like uh, language allows us to contextualize things but also like draw associations between things and Mm -hmm. it it feels kind of pertinent to all this discussion where it's like uh you know we as humans are capable of uh assigning like uh, going against your duty is bad like mm-hmm. uh, and duty means all of these good things so if you don't do it you like it's bad and you're bad and all this kind of stuff and you can really like uh, like Fitz does agonize in ways that you just can't when you're in wolf mode <laughs> and uh, like sure if you step in a trap or whatever can you hurt your wolf leg <laughs> right. right your your wolf like uh yeah could you hurt yourself yeah but you can't psychologically suffer when you're in that mode and you just have this like undercurrent of acceptance of like life and the, here are the things i'm supposed to be doing and you don't question it in the way that like Fitz is always, like we've said, agonizing over right. all of these right. things. Like Fitz suffers uh, in a way that he can't when he's a wolf. And right. he kind of laments that when he's reflecting on it. Like all his best moments in his <laughs> life are basically just when he's wolf stuff. Uh, like in, yeah, when he's in wolf mode. Right. And there's another interesting uh, passage in Wolf Days that I think kind of summarizes this, where he is bonded with, like, died and gone to night eyes, right? For wolves, as for dogs, life is a briefer thing than for men. If you measure it by counting days and how many turns of a season one sees. But in two years, a cub wolf does all a man does in a score. He comes to the full of his strength and size. He learns all that is needful for him to be a hunter or a mate or a leader. The candle of his life burns brighter and briefer than a man's. In a decade of years, he does all that a man does in five or six times that many. A year passes for a wolf as a decade does for a man. Time is no wise, time is no miser when one lives always in the now. So... Mm. I feel like this whole chapter where Fitz is died and gone to be a wolf with night eyes, there's a lot of this kind of thesis going uh, for Fitz, whether it's all 
what Hobbes is saying to accept all of it and live in the now and free yourself from the burdens of society. I don't think so. I think there's going to be a consequence to a statement like that. But it's something that Fitz has never been allowed to do. It's something Shrewd asked him to do, like be your own man, stand up straight or walk away from all of this. Like I, that's what I want for you. And he literally does. He manages to escape through just as a wolf, but to what is that an escape and to what is that actually living life? It, it's hard to say. Hob gives no answers because Fitz is always making mistakes and fumbling through and it's always complicated and there's never a clear solution. But it's a really interesting, thought-provoking idea. Is he escaping as the wolf or is he truly experiencing life free from the burdens of this bureaucracy baloney that never treated him right in the first place hard to know and then when he comes back to life at the end you don't know what to feel you're like is this good or is this bad i don't know was he better off just running around as a wolf all the time or is he better off getting a second chance at life now who knows who's to say well we'll have to see how that all plays out in book three but it does remind me of uh, fight club actually uh, mm. where there's <laughs> that famous quote from someone who you might not want to take life advice <laughs> from <laughs> in tyler durden uh, yeah. but he can be pretty uh, much like regal in some ways pretty charismatic <laughs> and easy to like uh, fall mm. for uh, even mm. though he does some terrible things but he says it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything and mm. i think that we finally get this moment where Fitz who's been falling back on all of his uh, things he like is supposed to do because of duty because of all these outside forces that are uh, talking him exactly what he needs to do or he has no choice and blah 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 it's like all right now like that's all gone mm-hmm. he is considered dead to the world besides like a couple people who know that he's alive and now fits uh someone that you lovingly called like fantasies uh most most Human lovable doormat, doormat yeah. Yeah, something something like that like yeah, that. yeah. Uh, you you have him in a moment where it's like all right now he doesn't really have so many people to to step on him and he doesn't have these overbearing forces to weigh down on him he's gonna have to figure out what to do and i'm, I'm interested to see where that goes because the possibilities are endless because now that he's lost everything he's lost molly he's lost his position in court uh he's everyone thinks lost, he's dead everyone thinks he's dead uh he is free to do anything uh, but knowing Fitz, uh, he might not choose <laughs> the wisest options. Uh, but neither did Tyler Durden. So <laughs> I don't know. Book, you know, I'm reading the like omnibus on my Kindle of all three books in the trilogy. And finishing book two, you're only like 57% of the way through, which means book three is almost three as long so as the long. other two combined. <laughs> Pretty close. So, yeah. There's a lot of decisions to be made, I guess, uh, with with Fitz after this. But um, it does set an interesting premise. And, you know, I guess you can kind of talk about Birch a little bit because Birch is the one that conceives the idea and brings him back and all of this. And, you know, his sense of duty is an interesting one to look at here, too, because you learn that he was the first one to love Lady Patience 
and then that didn't work out and then he went on to be like chivalry's right-hand man and a, a father figure to Fitz, and you get to see some of those touching moments too and he's an interesting character he's one who has committed his whole life to service of others and he's taken everything as a service and and um in the end it's kind of left him alone you have to figure out is this his life a life well lived i mean who knows is his one charge you know he lost the stables that was something that happened right that was um depressing and it's like you work your whole life like devoted to breeding the best horses like raising the best animals for the king and then regal just sells it all away in like no time it is heartbreaking and you feel for him but it's again that sense of like sometimes those things are going to go away and what do you have left you know for birch there's not much right and it's interesting to contrast Burrich's situation with patience with mm-hmm. how Fitz treated his situation with Molly. Like <laughs> Burrich, it seemed like it was a much cleaner cut. Like he's a more, he's a pretty straightforward guy, at least unless more things are going to be revealed in the future about how that all played out. Kind of seems like he was like, well, this can't work. That sucks. Yeah. And then chivalry went on to marry patience. And, and then, like, you know, he doesn't really talk to her ever. They don't have a relationship now that she's single and ready to mingle, and so is he. And they're just, he's just like, I'm not even, no. Is Burrage <laughs> ready to mingle? <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> he's certainly single, but is he ready to mingle? That's, Probably that's not. <laughs> Is the, he can basically mingle with with farm animals, and that's a, about the limit. And dogs, mm-hmm. but he's not implying anything about Birch's relationship. I was going to say, to these not animals. a great choice. Like phrasing, a, not a great phrasing. Well, there, mingling, but. mingling doesn't. I know, mean I know. But that. in the context of single and ready to mingle, it does right. mean something, which is what we were talking about. So. Um, <laughs> and my mind is thinking know. like phrasing, phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> well, not implying any of that stuff. No, of, uh, of course, although Birch we don't is know. A straight up man. But it's funny, like when Fitz is using the wit, and Birch is like, "I'd rather you have your hand in your pants than in front of me than using the wit." You know, you're like, "Oh, he really doesn't like the wit." <laughs> yeah. Well, he ends up compromising on that in the end, uh, where he. He cares more about Fitz than he mm-hmm. does about whatever principles he has around the wit. And he, uh, you know, he puts on that big show and spits, <laughs> spits on Fitz. Yeah, <laughs> spits on Fitz. <laughs> I don't know what's so funny about it. <laughs> it sounds like something you would like do at a carnival like you know i don't know it's like spits on bits to... putting on the wrist <laughs> right i don't know i'm just thinking of when people throw the ball at those things and dunks oh, at, like, it's like a carnival so game like, yeah come on, on come on spits on fits <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah he spits on fits and then he yeah, he puts on that big show just to indicate to Fitz, hey, you got to use the wit and pretend to be dead and we'll settle the rest. And it's even just Fitz's understanding that 
Birch cares about him that much that allows Fitz to be like, wait, he wouldn't have done that. Like, he he knows him too well. He knows deep down that Birch has, has a heart of gold. And mm-hmm. Birch lives up to what we would say uh, is more Night Eyes-like. <laughs> not just in the sense that he basically concocts a plan with Night Eyes, but also in the sense that he prioritizes the literal people in his life rather than his you know lofty principles about the wit is bad and blah 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 so props to birch and he's he's a good character he's a really well-written character he is i love when his moments of sentimentality come through because when you think about this is the closest thing fitz has to a father even though everything in this book would, like all the circumstantial societal stuff around it would say otherwise, that's really what they are. And there's no denying that bond that they have. So it's always so great when they have those moments of vulnerability with each other, like, oh, the payoff is so sweet. When it happened in the first book, um, where we got to see those first glimpses, and then now where you see Birch really, like, compromising his long-held beliefs and to 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 be with to help fits you know it, it's because in this book the chips really were down and people had to really evaluate what was important to them and birch chooses fits every time it's a really nice thing to see and i agree and I mean, his character just really shines in these books he gets so many great moments for whatever it is i, I love their relationship me too i think Basically, the only character we haven't given any pop is the fool, who mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. We know he holds all these like weird answers to things, and he comes from like he he gives us some details about his background in this book, and mm-hmm. uh, still it kind of raises more questions than it really provides answers, which is classic fool uh he like the only thing that is pretty clear about the fool is that he really is loyal to shrewd and cares a lot about shrewd and now shrewd is dead yeah and it's it'll be interesting to see he left with ketrikin who we also i guess didn't give a lot of pop but seems like her you know, her plot is pretty straightforward of, like, she came into her own somewhat. And then yeah, she left. yeah, when you think and... about that sense of duty, right, where, you know, she's, her, where she comes from, the mountain folk, they call their royalty sacrifice. And this whole idea that you exist to sacrifice your personal pleasures and well-being to serve the greater realm and sometimes i feel like she's always having to re-realize that that's the case and it's just as true in buck keep as it was in the mountains even though they don't outwardly say it and i think she's just um learning to do that in a different way like trying to hold court and gain influence instead of moping around waiting for your husband to come back it's like you can take these moments and and 
raise them up for yourself. But, you know, she doesn't, at the end of the day, she ends up escaping and disappearing and that's that, you know? So, um, like you said, pretty straightforward for our, for our good friend Ketrickin. But I do like that whole sacrifice kind of motif. Yeah, that's definitely interesting and wraps in with some of the other stuff that we talked about. But yeah, then there is the fool, and I'm, I guess it's hard to put a finger on how he fits into all of this. And I guess I, I'm kind of wary about putting you on the spot mm-hmm. to describe it too much just because you know how the, how it ends. Like, I, if we were both reading this for the first time, I would be like, Charles... Where do you think the fool fits into all of this? But I don't know. I guess you kind of know where he fits into everything because you know how it ends. But I guess, is there any way to get into that kind of speculation discussion around, like, how does he fit in with the themes? How does he fit in? Like, he does just seem like he's this oddball that's hard for me to place. Like, oh, well, and the fool is also, like, the fool, what? He's loyal to shrewd. He is but like the wild card. How does that card. fit into everything? You know, he's very much a wild card. He's we get a little bit of his origin. We know he has these interesting origins coming from this unique tribe and that he's out here trying to set the universe on the proper course. You know, there's only a couple different options in which the the world will flow correctly and he's committed to seeing the path through and you don't really know you get the sense he's kind of sitting at a higher plane but it's hard to say at this point his relationship with king shrewd i always found fascinating he was so fiercely um loyal and he was hysterical when the king died and you have to wonder like um, what's next for him after that and, and how he could have allowed such a deep emotional connection if he's trying to set this greater course of the world. I think he's just going to be a bunch of contradictions. It, it's no... His character, and when you said it in the last episode, I found it so true when I was reading this book of comparing him to um, the fool in um, the Kingkiller Chronicles. Yeah, the wit. King's the wit, wit. <laughs> and not to be confused with the wit in yeah. <laughs> Farseer trilogy that has right. the fool. <laughs> this is the wit <laughs> who is a fool. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's one of those kind of things for me. Not necessarily that he's like this supernatural being that jumps around uh like um samuel jackson in the avengers just (laughs) bringing people together not that vibe necessarily but um definitely like he's this chess piece does not give me samuel jackson vibes either for the (laughs) if they made a movie would be weird casting (laughs) (laughs) i'd ship it i don't know i think that'd be funny (laughs) it would be interesting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> although it's kind of, yeah yeah it's kind uh, of interesting not, yeah, doesn't, not, not really there's fits. some ways in which yeah, <laughs> in the line. but yeah it's it's interesting he definitely he's like always telling fits about how he's destined for great things but we also don't know the extent or that which. not that he's destined for great things but that his existence is putting all these great things, like all these possibilities could happen. Well, he uses the word catalyst, right? Yeah, catalyst. So it's more, and, and that's the same word that 
was used back in like the first chapter of Assassin's Apprentice where Fitz by, merely by being born like right. screwed up the whole line. Because I don't think he ever said you're going to do great things Fitz. I don't think anyone no, he's not ever like, said that about yeah. Fitz. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think he's destined for that. But um, um, That's he, fair. It's, um, it's this idea that his existence causes so much like catalyst and turmoil and potential (laughs) like could he rise to power could he be used as a tool could he uh, be killed could he you know defame a whole side of a royal family who knows (laughs) who knows yeah Uh, he it definitely shows up in the moment where he almost becomes like temporary king and then Mm-hmm. He screws it all up by <laughs> violently murdering was a guy's name Justin or something like that. Yeah, one of the coterie just members. Just violently murdering Justin in front of everyone. Just the scene <laughs> of Justin running, screaming, and then Fitz just being like, ah, the knife wailing, flailing around. Oh that would be a great <laughs> moment for film if we are ever so lucky as to get a farcier uh video adaptation i can't imagine that's gonna happen if it hasn't happened yet but who knows with all these fancy adaptations that are getting made seriously i don't know definitely a lot of a lot of big things that circle around fits and theoretically, he could be destined for great things. For sure. But to do that, you have to be willing to not murder Justin. In front <laughs> and of you have to be one. alive. And you have to be, yeah. you know, a functioning human being. <laughs> but uh, Which is yeah. tough for Fitz. Tough for Fitz, especially where we leave him at the end of this book, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tough, but um, down but A lot but of pages left. To a lot. try to like yeah. the story is like halfway through basically if you look at page count um so we got a long Charles. ways to go into book three <laughs> <laughs> on the wikipedia page under reception it says mostly positive reviews um uh, of the book kirkus reviews stated the novel is a spellbinding installment built of patient detail, believable characters, and mature plotting. Though, at an unwarranted 608 pages, there are <laughs> ominous signs that Hobbes beginning to lose control of her narrative. Which is <laughs> <Just> kind of <laughs> hilarious. I don't think she's lost. I guess that's kind of what they're saying, though, is I assume that review was written before the final book came out. <laughs> Wait until they uh, see book three, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well... That happened a long time ago. I wonder if they thought she lost control of her narrative. I, I, I think that that's a funny way of phrasing it, not entirely off, where you could be like, this was really good, but I'm slightly worried she's going to lose control of this narrative. And yeah. we'll have to see. I, it's yeah. a the long, fact that we kinda, know it's a long book, you're like, yeah. oh, maybe she did lose a little, you know, control of like, right now I have to like retell a whole story now because I wipe the slate clean almost on some of the stuff you know who knows yeah that's it's interesting it's one of those books that like if you do read a wikipedia summary of the things that happened you're shocked that 
like so few things happened in that long a book yeah. which not yeah it's there's other books that i've read that if you read the wikipedia summary of those books you'd be like oh my god so many things happened but you don't care about any of them that much because they're just happening so fast and there's no development and, and yeah it's like i think what we're getting and that's why i always take that criticism of this series i've had to take so much abuse of people criticizing the series but i never (laughs) think they're wrong (laughs) i never think they're wrong because it's always like this is a conscious choice from hob it's an investment right like it's meant to be long and it's meant to be kind of um you know, to put it in the words of that Wikipedia article, you just read us a patient detail. You know, like we are mature plotting. You know, these are the things that we're building up towards. We get these payoffs, these emotional vulnerability moments um, are built off the back of all of that investment in reading we've had to get here. You can only suffer with fits by the end of this book having read through so much of his story to get there you know it's one thing to say he was you know captured beaten killed it's another thing to watch all the people and leave in his life and and know what that's like because you've been with him so intimately for so long you know i don't think you can get there without that kind of depth well said and i would say that the king killer chronicle which we keep referencing is also a book that you would look at the length. <laughs> Those books are probably both longer summary. than than any of these books. Oh, <laughs> by yeah, by a substantial amount. Although yeah. maybe I would say maybe the third book here is close. not much. Yeah, it's probably pretty close to the name of the wind. And Wise Man's Fear is even longer, so that's got to be the longest of all of them. But yeah, I would say also falls in the category of a book that if you read the Wikipedia summary, you'd be like, not that much happens in this really long book. But mm-hmm. it's these authors who, A, have amazing prose, and B, have an ability to slowly unfold things and also give you basically a character study at the same time as telling a story. And there's just very few books that I could name that come anywhere close to giving such a clear character study of any individual character to the same extent. I mean, even like, I think Joe Abercrombie writes like the best characters in the game, basically, Mm -hmm. but he's never written a book that is so tied to one particular character and right. their experience in the mm-hmm. way that if he did, I'm sure that would be unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And that would be like, I could only imagine how great a character study that would be. Uh, <laughs> but if you want the experience of getting to know one particular character at such an intimate level and understanding them so deeply in a way that's rare in fiction, I mean, how can you beat Hobbes' Farseer trilogy when it comes to that? Yeah, you really can't. And on the flip side, if you're not looking for that and that's what you stumble into, it it, it may not be the cup of tea. But for me, it's like this is such a rewarding experience. When we read so much fantasy back to back to back, it's like 
to see a story like this told with such mastery, and that's the thing. Every passage I read, I'm like, wow, so good. It's exactly like reading Patrick Rothfuss, where you're just like, this is just like so brilliant. They're just on all the time. You could be writing about, they could be writing about anything, and you just feel moved by it in some way. And that is, it's a rare thing. And now, like this, this second book, Royal Assassin, it. it it ends on such an interesting note. It's almost like a, a rebirth, right? Basically, and just to see where the story is going to so go. And weird. you know, like a bastard looking like they died and then being reborn. I mean, have we ever seen anything else like that? <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> Hard to say without spoiling. With a wolf companion? <laughs> no, with not with a wolf companion. With a Dem- oh, we've seen it, but we've never seen it with a wolf companion. That's a great point, Charles. <laughs> with Although a wolf this, companion. <laughs> if that ever happened, maybe it happened later than this book. So that's that's true. This book is paving the way for bastard wolf companion rebirths potentially, but we don't know. If that, too many, but it hasn't it, happened. Yeah, there maybe there's others. We haven't checked everything, but it would be really unlikely. Probably in very obscure works. <laughs> nothing, nothing big or yeah, anything like. Yeah, no, yeah. This is not a motif that we that the fantasy genre ships that often. Okay, like that. You know, so no. wolf companion, bastard, uh, resurrections. I mean, gotta be one of a kind. It's so so like. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Of a royal family, you know, like royal bloodline kind of thing. Like, no, no, just doesn't happen. The a a catalyst in the the like the fate of of the world. And if it did happen in a later book, you'd think people would be like, "Wait, they copied." (laughs) And we're talking like not even a decade later, and you're like, "That's kind of weird." Well, actually, no, because. Sometimes well, some of these things are shown in video form before the books come oh, out, and you're like, <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, Sometimes. well, we don't know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, some, That's true. Some things we we can pretty confidently say then that nothing like this that we know of has been written in a book. <laughs> no, besides no. this book. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anything that would be written after this would you'd be like hmm that's kind of interesting i see the influence here i see yeah. the influence but um we're certainly going to leave inspired now and i think the only thing left to do is um you know go back and start reading the big book that is book three and uh and uh before that we got to play the sweet sweet outro music what do you say assassin's quest that's right I always get the names of these books confused. One, because I'm reading the Omnibus, so I'm never even like aware of the title. But I also just think these titles sell the book so short. You know, we got A Wise Man's Fear, The Name of the Wind. A title like that would have been so much more warranted than right. Assassin's Apprentice, Royal Assassin, Assassin's Quest. You know, like the fact that he's an assassin is such an... Oh, it's my new <laughs> part of what we're dealing with right now. A more poetic, longer title, I think, would have served these books so well. But would they have sold? Who knows? It was another time. It was another time. I do think it's... We talked about this in greater detail in Assassin's Apprentice, uh, in mm-hmm. an episode covering Assassin's Apprentice. But yeah, there's clearly a misalignment between what 
the titles we're trying to convey and then what the books are actually like in Mm -hmm. terms of like the title sounds actiony the books are introspective and mature plotting Uh, so it's kind of yeah selling it short but also selling it incorrectly just like a mis-marketing thing you know they were trying to just it was the 90s it was the 90s, guys. People were just calling <laughs> things. It was like they invented the two-word title, and it was like the hottest thing, you know? <laughs> now everyone has a two-word title, and, and here we are. But um, no, it's great. It's great. I wonder if Robin Hobb named the books or if, like, the you know how sometimes it's rare for an I author to have? I wonder if she, like, even likes the names. <laughs> I'd that would like be that. an interesting question if we could ever ask her. That would be be an interesting question. Because you're right about, like, The Name of the Wind is a title that just aligns so well with the story being told. Yeah, like The Way of the Wolf or something, you know? The Name of the Wolf, you know? Whatever. It would have been cooler than whatever this was. Wolf in the title would have been cool, too. Better than Assassin. Yeah, the Assassin thing is, like, tertiary to what's going on with Fitz and his identity. (laughs) <laughs> yes, not even, yeah, 100%. If you were thinking you were reading an assassin book, you'd be very disappointed. <laughs> now they'd call it like the wolf, the something with wolf and bastard, but because you could put bastard in now. Yeah, that may have been too, I don't know, yeah, that would have been a little edgy. In 90s is too edgy. All right, well, uh, what do you say, Dylan? I think we've exhausted our conversation here, and uh, let's get that to I think we've exhausted you, you Charles. Yeah, I so, think I think so. I would say that last bit dip the edge. Let's get I'm, that sweet, sweet outro music pumping. All right. Thank you, everyone, one and all, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, if you want to support the show or continue that conversation going, reach out to us over on social media. That's at the FTF Podcast on uh, Instagram and at the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end on Twitter. Now, Dylan, if you like what you... X is basically run by Regal. I'm going to say that right now. That's While we're buried in the end of the episode, Regal and the owner of X are like the same person. And so with that... I don't think Regal's as vain as that person, Charles. Let's give Regal a little bit of credit here. He he did rebrand the Farseer Crest, though. He totally rebranded that. But um, before we... uh, you know, wrap it up, Dylan. If they like what they heard today, if they want to support the show even more than following us on social media, what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast, which you can do over on Spotify. Just two clicks over at the top of the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast feed. It helps us so much when you do that. You can also rate and or review on Apple Podcasts. If you write a review, that will put a smile on my face and presumably on Charles's face as well. But just listening is more than enough. You presume correctly, Dylan. Smiles are had. And just by listening, we're grinning ear to ear. So thank you all so, so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And as always, guys, go forth and conquer, friends.